Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. On today's podcast, we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Sonia Douglas Horsford, who is an Associate Professor of Education Leadership in the Department of Organization and Leadership at Teachers College, Columbia University, and whose research focuses on race and education leadership, policy, and reform. Dr. Horsford, welcome to Race and Democracy. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's get right to it. We're living in extraordinary watershed times. Over the last three weeks, we've seen over 2,000 American cities erupt in the largest mass protest for racial justice, for Black dignity and citizenship in American history. And since your work deals so much with race and education policy and reform, I wanted to have a conversation about the intersection between race, democracy, education, and Black citizenship, especially with this unique opportunity that we have in the context of not just this COVID-19 pandemic, but with these protests, we've seen so many different ancient symbols of white supremacy topple almost daily. Uh, NASCAR with the Confederate flag, the NFL saying Black Lives Matter, really hundreds of corporate organizations saying that Black Lives Matter and recognizing systemic racism. So many parts of the country celebrating Juneteenth, June 19th, as a day of jubilee and freedom. And that was when the last group of African-Americans or Black Americans in Galveston, Texas, heard news from Union military uh, officer that emancipation had come and in Texas, that celebration started in 1866 and has spread to really become a national celebration. So I want to talk about how do you feel about this moment, both as a scholar, as an activist? How do you feel? I feel a lot of things. Um, and I think a lot of us are feeling a lot of emotions right now. Sadly, I'm not terribly surprised, um, given the history of race in this country, how it operates, and particularly how it's manifested in schools and in education. I think this is a moment where we can actually engage in the process of thinking about the possibilities of education and Black futures in education. But at the same time, I think we have to be careful in recognizing um, that although there are a lot of statements being made and a lot of symbolic actions that are taking place, that it's still very important that we focus our energy on the education of Black children in particular, of Black people, and that that includes, which I think this moment provides an opportunity to really think about our history um, and to begin to study more and to be serious about how we are not only talking about race and discussing it and having conversations, but how we're theorizing it. What do we mean when we say race? What exactly are we talking about? Are we talking about... Um, you know, a, a demographic variable? Are we talking about the color of someone's skin? Or are we talking about uh, a tool that's been developed to distribute resources politically, right? Um, <laughs> and to determine status in society. And so that's, I hope the thing that we'll really focus on, particularly within the education research and practice community, that although we we can make gains, and I think we're seeing that with the uprisings and um, the protests, which 
which really does is, is encouraging for me to see. Um, but at the same time, how are we thinking about young people? Um, how are we thinking about investing in the minds and the education and the preparation of the children and youth um, who are and will always be impacted by this moment, emotionally, educationally, and psychologically? And so what what do you think in a policy sense um, we can do, both education leaders, uh, parents, both K through 12 and at the university, especially given the fact that uh, our story in terms of that Black freedom struggle is becoming so well known. Uh, the journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones won a Pulitzer Prize for shepherding the 1619 Project, New York Times. The Pulitzer Prize was just posthumously awarded to Ida B. Wells, one of the most extraordinary Black women intellectuals and activists, anti-racist criminal justice activists in American history. And now we have so many deeper explorations into the history of Juneteenth and the notion of Juneteenth as a national holiday, offering us a, an opportunity for a public conversation that also has social impact pedagogically in terms of curriculum, not just reform, but curriculum transformation and uh, investment in education that may be coming from defunding police and prison abolition. So what should we be, what should we be demanding and, and what should, how should we be theorizing, but also uh, organizing around social impact uh, for racial justice and educational policy, leadership, curriculum, instruction at this time? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great question, one that I've been thinking a lot about. I think well, one of the projects that I currently have underway um, with the Black Education Research Collective, which is a group of faculty and students and researchers who are really interested in how we bridge research policy and practice uh, around issues of schools and schooling. And we are getting ready to launch a study um, where we actually talk to Black students, Black parents, Black teachers to, to ask them what they think needs to happen. I mean, I think one of the challenges and limitations of the research that we do around schools is that we have often done things for Black people, but not with them. And so while the narratives around educational equity and diversity and inclusion, integration and justice have really taken hold, it's really absent the voices of Black students, parents and teachers and educators and the people who are really on the ground. And so what we want to do now is conduct you know, a series of surveys, focus groups, and actually speak with folks to figure out and answer two questions. Primarily, one is how is COVID um, and um, you know, the recent, the brutal and senseless murders um, of innocent Black men, women, and children, you know, how has that impacted education in your community? And two, what should leaders and policymakers do about it? And um, although I have my own thoughts and recommendations of what needs to happen, and I'm happy to share those, I think that having those conversations and actually collecting information from those most impacted is what is necessary in this moment. And that we can't rely on the quote unquote experts um, who have in many ways failed us up, up until this point. Yeah. And so from that perspective, you're thinking along the lines of uh, community action programs, great society initially uh, invited community members to help design anti-poverty efforts until bureaucrats and politicians ended that abruptly. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but really, as an educational expert, Sonia, what can you, what are some recommendations that you have in terms of what we could do at the policy level, both to get rid of the thousands of racist policies that impact our Black children's education, um, but also that would institutionalize anti-racist racial justice policies? 
Well, I think we need to abolish um, funding programs that we know don't really work for Black children. And so I think part of that is the charter management network and organizations um, that serve a lot of Black children that really have not been effective in educating them. I think it's going to require um, shifts in funding, obviously, changes to state funding formulas um, so that monies are actually allocated to uh, districts and communities that have the greatest need and with the largest uh, shares of children of color and low-income children. Um, I think there will need to be changes in curriculum um, and what that looks like, and that's going to require leadership at the school board and district level. Um, and when you say changes in curriculum specifically, are you saying things like our children should be learning about racial slavery, they should be learning more Black history? Um, what, what do you mean in terms of the curriculum? Yeah, I think we need to have, um, yes, those things as well. And I think that's for everyone. I mean, for all children, I just think we need a more holistic um, and culturally responsive curriculum for all students. And I think we need to have a larger focus on the foundations um, in terms of social, in terms of history, sociology, um, philosophy back in schools. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, high stakes testing and accountability has really narrowed the curriculum in ways that I would argue have contributed to um, the lack of engagement and political activism that we have currently. Um, and that when you mentioned testing, when you mentioned testing, because certain schools, because of COVID, are now saying they're not going to take the SAT in the short term. Some are saying no more SAT, AC, ACT in the long term. Do do black children and just all children from K to twelve? Do you think they need to take any national tests at all? I don't, I would have to think more about that to answer that. Um, I think that formative assessment is important and that assessment for learning is important. Um, and so, you know, I'm not a teacher. My focus is really around um, education policy and leadership, but I think that we need to empower our teachers to use assessments in the ways that they were designed and in ways that actually help teaching and learning. Um, in terms of national assessments, I mean, I do think that there is value in seeing whether or not we are educating children and that they're learning the content that we think they need to learn to be able to uh, be active participants in our democracy. Um, and so I, I just think that we really need to revamp and transform education overall. I mean, I know it sound, it's a lot, but I think if we continue to tinker around the edges that we're really not and never going to see um, the type of changes that we want to see. And so that's revisiting the school day and that's revisiting how um, courses are, are set up. I have two, I have three children. Um, my oldest boys are very vocal. One is in college and one is in high school. And, you know, they <laughs> have lots of opinions about how school should be structured. And it's really fascinating because it makes sense and it's something that we can do. And I think that the more that we include student voices in this process, particularly Black students, um, that we could really generate some uh, powerful and feasible ways of changing our education system. And I think it's um, it requires change in, in almost every aspect of it, which is why it's so hard to transform education. Um, but I think this moment actually gives us a window to do it in ways that maybe we weren't able to before. Well, when you think about um, this national moment in terms of this racial justice moment, Black Lives Matter movement, um, what can educational leaders do uh, to try to make this part of school curriculums? You know, um, 
the fact that so many people are interested in anti-racism, civil rights, African-American history, which is really American history. Mm-hmm. But what can educational leaders and what kind of policies would we need to make this moment more of a permanent movement, at least in terms of educational uh, policy? I mean, education is so much a human service profession, right? I mean, it's really about the people in schools. And so we, I think, need to understand that teaching is a valued profession, that education is a valued profession. Um, And I I really feel like it starts there, um, that when we change the nature of what it means to be a teacher or educator, um, whether it's through compensation, prestige, um, and also um, the support that we provide teachers to deliver the type of curriculum and instruction and support that we say that we want, I think that that would then really change um, education more broadly, that it would bring the people into the field um, that we really need to be able to deliver curriculum that would be equitable. Um, so I think one of the challenges is that our workforce currently remains uh, majority white, middle-class women. Um, and so we can engage in all of the anti-racism and cultural responsive training that we want. Um, but my concern is that unless we really transform the workforce so that it includes individuals that hold a certain set of values as it relates to education, and that is that education is a social good, that education is a valued profession, um, that it's a collective responsibility, and that it is the practice of freedom, that only through that that mechanism can we really change what education looks like. If not, we will continue to make changes again that compel us to engage in schooling, right? Um, Where it is much more technical, it's much more uh, focused on inputs and outputs and outcomes um, as identified by policymakers. Um, So I just think that we need to have a new vision of education that's really grounded in the values of equity and justice um, and not just the rhetoric of equity and justice. And when you say that, do you feel that what's currently happening both at the at the federal level when you think about this current administration, but even the previous in- administration under Arne Duncan, um, and I remember when President Obama was elected, his uh, educational transition team was headed by Linda Darling-Hammond, mm-hmm. who's done so much work on equity and justice, and people felt maybe she would be Secretary of Education. He went another way with Arne Duncan. Um, do you think that this is uh, a bipartisan problem in terms of uh, whether people are Democrats or Republicans at the federal level, uh, the policy initiatives that they support. So many people support charter schools. So many people still support high stakes test- testing. What do you think needs to be done, um, especially at the federal level, considering the billions of dollars that the federal government gives to states uh, sort of in a carrot and stick incentive um, whether it's race to the top programs, no child left behind, what do you think needs to be done at the federal level? Well, I mean, it'd be great to have Linda Darling Ham in there. <laughs> I mean, I do, I do believe in the power of leadership, and I think having someone that has and holds values and expertise and knowledge like she does um, would be critical, and I, that, that that would make send an important message. Um, it really is, you know, an issue for the states, though. I mean, I think the federal messaging is important, but again, it comes down to the dollars and resources and representation at the state level. Um, and I think this is where communities can be more active and engaged in just being involved in state level politics. You know, the legislatures, the governors, they're the ones that are really determining the extent to which schools are funded and, and how and what that looks like. And our school boards still 
although, you know, they look very different than maybe they have, um, you know, 30, 40 years ago, are still a lever for change. And so while the system is not perfect, I still think there's opportunities for us to engage it in ways that could help build power um, at the community level and help to shape the agendas around education. Um, so I really think it's going to be require more grassroots, especially at this in this moment, because we don't have federal leadership around education. And in fact, we don't have a national agenda around education. And so I'm really concerned, but also interested in how we can begin to build that um, in this presidential year. You know, what what are our expectations uh, next year for, um, well, even this year for reopenings, um, for investments, for um, the budgets for schools? You know, what does that look like? And is it only? It's a moment where we can either exacerbate the inequalities or find ways to really change the structure of schools um, so that they can be more equitable. And I think it's a big question mark right now. Well, do you think that these conversations that we're having about Juneteenth and just Black history provide leverage for that reconsideration that you're talking about? Or do you think that this is a moment where somehow it passes um, and people aren't going to be thinking about education because what I'm seeing is that people are doing sort of an all of the above strategy right now, uh, including criminal justice reform, but connecting criminal justice reform to these panoramic systems of, of oppression, which include education and which really include public school segregation that has, um, continued apace. I think uh, Gary Orfield says that uh, racial integration, the high point is 1988. And then we see uh, a real devolution because of different court cases, court decisions, the Supreme Court parents versus teachers decision. Um, so many different decisions that have made even voluntary school integration off the table. So what do you think the prospects are of turning this moment into something that's going to be transformative for educational leadership and policy. It's going to take a black people uniting around a vision of education and demanding it. Um, those in elected office, those in schools, those in power. Um, and I think it, it, it's just, we have to develop an agenda around this. This is something that we've been talking about for years because I do think some of the other issues trump education, obviously. Um, what, you know, criminal justice, kind of the immediate things that continue to flare up and education takes so much more time for us to focus on. Um, but I, you know, I'm, I'm really thinking about and advancing a theory of emancipatory leadership. Um, and that focuses on first recognizing that our education systems are very restrictive and constraining and that they are part of what is keeping us from um, Black liberation um, and from really being able to uh, benefit from education as a practice of liberation and freedom. And so... And, and elaborate on that when you say they're very restrictive and restraining. Well, I mean, we can't continue to know that testing is racist and biased, but continue to use it. Mm. Um, we, you know, we can't continue to know that the curriculum is not um, complete or relevant, but we continue to use it. We can't continue to complain about the fact that our teacher workforce is predominantly white, female, and middle class, but not do anything really about it. Um, so many times I've proposed not reform, but a stop list, <laughs> you know, where we just stop doing the practices that educators 
all, every educator knows is not working. Um, and just stop the cycle of, and the inertia of doing things the way that they've always been done and taking this moment to pause and assess our values. I mean, one of the things that we teach in our leadership preparation programs, you know, is vision, the importance of vision and values. Um, but I would argue that we don't really spend time on that. It's more around the technical aspects of compliance, of responding to accountability measures, of trying to get test scores up, right? And we, uh, many of us have bought into this, this system. I think historically Black education leaders understood that they had an obligation to the Black freedom struggle. And that's why they were educators. But now we're in a moment where we have a lot more leaders who are working as managers and administrators and compliance officers, you know, within these institutions that are really constrained in their ability to advocate for their community while also serving that company or that institution or that charter school, right? So I think the loyalties and the obligations have shifted in many ways in this neoliberal context that make it even less clear in terms of what where the fight is and where, where the struggle should be. And so for me, although there's this larger question of how we improve education nationally for all children, my concern and focus right now is how we think about the future of Black education. What has it looked like historically? How has it been such a powerful tool um, for Black civil rights, um, for justice, for changes in policy, and for building power? And how do we study that and remember that and leverage that now in ways that help to build the power, political power um, and educational power, I think, that's been lost? Um, when we forget what we're fighting for. All right. My final question is really based off of what you've just said. How do we use, because you know the history of educational policy and leadership connecting to race, how do we use any past examples of success uh, and leverage those um, for the future? Is there an experiment that had worked in the past? Is there uh, sort of a shining example of um, things that worked but perhaps weren't scaled up? Or do we have to really sort of rethink and reimagine all of it? No, I think there's many lessons from the past. And this is one of the projects I'm working on um, now with uh, Professor Emeritus Edmund Gordon. Um, and we are working on a compendium that captures the history of the education of, pe of peoples of African descent. Because what the problem is, is that a lot of the research doesn't exist um, in many ways, or it's in different places. And so we, wanna, we want to compile that and bring it together so that we have this foundational knowledge that educate, educators of all races can draw from. There are many examples of Black educational leaders and of educators that developed networks across the country pre-desegregation um, that allowed them to share best practices. And, you know, they had conventions and convenings. And Vanessa Siddle-Walker writes about this beautifully in her work. And I think there's just a lot of lessons that we can learn there. And I, I feel that there is a movement afoot among educators. I mean, there's amazing educators and educational organizations that have been doing this work um, in the current moment as well. And so I think continuing to do that and to use social media um, to allow those networks to uh, regenerate in the current moment, to share those practices. And to, you know, for me, it's really about building power so that we can get the resources that we need to, to do what we need to do. Because um, I feel like educators know what they need to do. It's just all of the barriers around funding 
and policy that prevent them from doing it. So that's my hope is that we can um, organize around a larger vision, work in work you know together with practitioners, researchers, and policymakers to who are like minded to advance an agenda that supports what we know is best for the effective education of Black children. All right, we'll end on that note of hope. I'm always interested in hope, even as we lay out the real details and the challenges and the obstacles that we face. We've been talking about Black education and the future of education during this moment of racial justice uprisings and movements, Black Lives Matter uh, in the United States over the last several weeks. And we are privileged to have had with us Dr. Sonia Douglas-Horsford, who teaches at Teachers College, Columbia University, and is one of the nation's leading experts on education, leadership, policy, uh, race, and reform. Her latest book is The Politics of Education Policy in an Era of Inequality, Possibilities for Democratic Schooling, which offers a critical analysis of education policy amid widening social inequality, ideological polarization, and the dismantling of public institutions in the USA. Dr. Sonia Douglas-Horsford, thank you for joining us here at Race and Democracy. Thank you, Dr. Joseph. Thanks for listening to this episode, and you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj utexas.edu and the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.